is a workshop in the sense that there's a lot of discussion um, about evangelism. Because as you know, like our church is like very much specifically um, supposed to be evangelizing and bringing people from the Western culture into the church. As you know, historically, the Coptic church has been very Egyptian. Um, and we're trying to change that because we want to feel like the church is a part of the community and bringing people from the community to the church. So um, I wanted to speak a little bit about this topic of evangelism in the hopes that it can motivate all of us to get more confidence of how to evangelize to people and all the different types of evangelism there are so that we can feel comfortable in our day-to-day -day life to be evangelizing and to invite people to church. One thing I do want to uh, mention is um, our role in this process is just to make an effort. Like our role in this process is to feel comfortable talking about our faith, to invite people to the church, to invite people to Bible study, to invite people to whatever activities that we're having. Our job is not to save people because God is the savior and God is the one who works in the people. But all we are doing is facilitating that and helping that process by saying, okay, I'm going to make an effort to bring people to the church to talk about my faith instead of feeling maybe embarrassed or shy about it. And then um, wh whoever comes, comes. That's not my responsibility. But my responsibility is to do the role of an evangelist. So I'm going to speak a little bit. Um, this is kind of the outline of, um, of what we're going to be discussing um, over the next five weeks. So again, if you want to continue to attend these sessions um, the following weeks, please register so we know how many people to expect. Um, so the first question is, what is evangelism? And one of the, the, um, the verses in the Bible that I feel like touches like very well and explains like kind of this concept of evangelism is in 1 John chapter 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and the Son uh, and his Son, Jesus Christ. What, what strikes you in this passage that is related to events? How is this related to evangelism? Sorry? Following. Okay. So what? where are we following? Where it says what? That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our eyes have handled. What, what does that kind of bring to mind? Like an experience, right? Like you have an experience with God and the motivation of evangelism is the experience with God, right? Because then he goes on to say, and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare, right? So the two parts here is that you first have to see and hear, and then you declare, right? Because if you don't see or hear, you have nothing to declare, right? You first experience something, and then from that experience, you tell it to the people. So the first, that's why like when we speak about evangelism, the very first and, and most important thing is our own spiritual life. If I am not pursuing a spiritual life with God myself, then there's nothing I can share with anyone else because I'm not equipped to do so. I have nothing to share. 
And you see the examples that we're going to speak about in the scripture of those who were evangelists who went out and he, they evangelized. Nobody told them to do so. You know, like like the, the people that the people that um, are, are like some of the, the most famous people that evangelize. Like, for instance, we think of the Samaritan woman, right? The Samaritan woman, when she met with the Lord Christ at the well, nobody then told her, go and tell everybody what you thought or what happened or your experience. She just did it on her own. Like she couldn't contain herself to do it. Um, we're also going to speak about uh, uh, Levi, who is Matthew, the tax collector. Also, he went out on his own and described what it is that he experienced. Um, Nathaniel and Philip. Philip, when he met the Lord Christ, he went and told his friend Nathaniel on his own. Nobody commanded him to do so. And, and he, he did so, and they all did so, because they couldn't contain the excitement that they had at what is it that they had experienced. So sometimes in the Orthodox Church, we lose that excitement. We, we lose that sense of, of how special the church is, how special our faith is, how special our relationship with God is. What exactly did God do for us? Maybe we take it for granted or we, we lose sight of it. And so for us, it just becomes mechanical um, obligations and duties that we do to come to the church. And our faith is no longer something that is filled with any kind of excitement or any kind of joy. And it's just like checkboxes, you know. And if we're in that mode of the checkboxes, it's going to be very hard to evangelize because, again, evangelism is yet one more command. It's like one more checkbox. And it shouldn't be a checkbox. It should be something that is an outpouring of, of you know, w of our experience with God that we cannot keep quiet, right? That's how evangelism should be, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, Right, Because we see it, because we touch it, because we know it, we go and we declare it. The other thing that's interesting here, uh, it says what? That you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and the Son and His Son, Jesus Christ. What, what is that? What, what comes to your mind from that? That you may have fellowship with us. Who is he speaking about? This is a what? This is what? Yes. So this is this is a Catholic epistle, right? Who are the Catholic epistles written to? Hmm? Everyone. Everyone. So he's speaking to to like all the unbelievers. Okay? And he's saying to them that you may have fellowship with us. So the idea was in the early church, the church was not satisfied to be contained as a specific group of people, even among the Jews themselves, right? They wanted everyone to have fellowship with them. You know, sometimes in our churches, we, you know, we look around and we feel like, okay, the church is full. Thank God the church is full. I'm happy that the church is full. And this is, a, we don't need any more people. Right. We, everything is taken care of. Everyone is, you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing. The church is full. We feel content. We feel like the Sunday school classes are full. But here he's saying what we want you to have fellowship with us. We want to meet strangers because that's the thing with having fellowship with people who are outside the church. It's just they're strangers to us. Right. We're saying we want people who are strangers that we don't know today. We want to have fellowship with them. We want to know them. We want to know their names. We want to know their stories. We want to be with them. We want them to be in our church, which is sometimes not easy, right? It's maybe much more comfortable 
for me to um, just sit with the people that I already know, the people that I'm already friends with. It doesn't require, it, it, it's more comfortable for me to just be with those that group of people. It doesn't require me to take any real real steps. It's natural. It's natural for me to go and sit at the table with my friends, right? But here the idea that St. John is, is speaking to a group of people that he doesn't know, and he's saying, we want you to be with us, right? We want you to be with us. And not just with us so you can be our friend, but so that y the fellowship that we have with you is also the fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the, the fellowship that we are having with people is not just so we can expand our friend group. The fellowship that we have is to grow the body of Christ. And so we have fellowship with them. We have fellowship with God. They have fellowship with God as well, right? So it is for their salvation, but part of that process of salvation is to be in fellowship with these people. When someone is going to come to the church, we don't just tell them, okay, go attend this catechism class, and that's it. Go attend the catechism class, go be baptized, now you're Orthodox Christian, congratulations. Right? There is fellowship, meaning they have to be integrated into the body of Christ. They have to be integrated into the community. It's not just about the knowledge they have, and it's not just about the faith they have. That's why he's speaking here about fellowship. It is together, right? So when someone is coming from the outside, it should be one of our primary um, responsibilities. And like we feel like this is our role is to go and embrace that person. Maybe don't run up to them and hug them because they're going to get freaked out. But, but embrace them in the sense that make them feel comfortable, make them feel like they belong here, like they're welcome here. This is where we want them to be, right? Because that is what the fellowship is about. And a huge part of evangelism um, is, is fellowship. Um, the Lord, he said what? Um, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So God told us that we are a light indeed, okay, and that light should not be hidden. And maybe that's one of the characteristics traditionally in the Orthodox Church is that we have been a, a lamp that is hidden, right? We are, we are a lamp because we are a light to the world, but how many people know about us? Like how many people know about the truth that's found in the church? How many people know about the Orthodox Church, right? Very few people, you know, maybe in... In, in Eastern countries where orthodoxy is more um, predominant, a lot of people know about what the Orthodox Church is about. But here in the West, very few people know about the Orthodox Church comparatively, right? Which means what? That even though we are uh, a lamp, but we're not really shining so brightly so that other people can see this light that is coming from us, right? And that's on us, right? That's something that we, it is our job to make ourselves known, okay? And make ourselves known, I don't mean we're going to go put advertisements and billboards, okay? I mean that we are going to live differently. We're going to live differently so that people see the way that we live and see that there is something about our faith that's genuine, that's authentic, that's different than maybe anything else that people have experienced before. So they want, they're attracted to this life, right? They're attracted. If you look at the way the Lord lived, most of the time, most of the time, he wasn't preaching theology, a lot of times he was, but most of the time he wasn't preaching theology. He was just living his life. And it is through the decisions and the actions that he made that he attracted people to himself. So, for instance, when he fed the 5,000, okay, he didn't teach anything. He wasn't teaching a, a dogma, right? All he did is he showed love to people, even though it was at the end of the day. And he fed 5,000 people, and this made the people want to follow, uh, follow after him, 
right? He healed people. He touched people. He made them the people feel like they were valued, that they were loved, that they were important. And because of that, people wanted to follow him, right? So a big part of our job in the community is not to preach, right? There is a time for preaching, but there is a time for just attracting people through loving action, right? Which is maybe what people are lacking the most in the world is love, right? The world is full of hatred, right? The, full, the world is full of people being rude to one another, attacking one another, belittling one another. So even just being polite, just being honest, just being sincere, the simplest things will separate us from the rest of the world and the way the world acts, that people will see something different in us, right? And this is indeed evangelism um, and letting our light shine. So there's two kinds, there's two big kind of uh, branches of evangelism that I want to talk about in today and in subsequent talks. And I call them active versus passive, okay? Active evangelism. What do you what do you think of when you think of active evangelism? Being out in the community, doing what? You're actively pursuing someone. So, what's the example of something that would be active evangelism? Would like talking to your friend about the Christian faith is that active or passive? That's active because you're t you're doing something. You're actively evangelizing, okay? So what would be passive evangelism? Through your actions, yes? Living out your Christian life. Living out your Christian life, good. What else? Hmm? A food drive, community service, right? Community service is kind of like a mix, right? Because you're actively doing something, but also you're not necessarily preaching, but you're doing something good, right, that people can see and maybe they will ask questions about wh who are you and what do you believe. Prayer. Very good, right? Because you're praying for people to, to, to come to Christianity, to come to the faith. It's not necessarily active in the community, but it's something that is more hidden. Another very important um, form of passive evangelism, which we try to apply so much in the church, um, is... The idea of what is the church, like when somebody who is non-Christian or non-Orthodox comes into the church, they should feel welcomed. They should feel comfortable. They should feel like the church is accessible to them, that they can understand what it is that we're doing, that if they have a question, someone is there to answer the questions for them, right? That is all has to do with passive evangelism. Just the mere fact that we start on time and end on time. Right. That's also passive evangelism. Passive evangelism is m making the church such that it is the most likely to attract people when people see it or when people walk into it. Right. That's why we, we try our best to, you know, do things like have brochures or or do like a guide to the liturgy or make the website in such a way to be friendly or. Right. That might not be active, like we're not actually actively going and talking to anyone. We're not actively like preaching the word of God, but we're doing other small little things that would make people feel that this is a place that they feel comfortable to stay. OK. Um, one type of active evangelism is serving the community. Like we mentioned, an example of this is Tabitha. It says about her at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha which is translated Dorcas, 
this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds which she did right she would go into the community and she would serve the people and when the people see that she is serving them they would feel attracted to her that that, that she is doing something good for them another type of active evangelism is invitational right to invite other people to church we see this in the samaritan woman it says the woman then left her water pot went her way into the city and said to the men come see a man who told me all things that i ever did could this be the christ then they went out of the city and came to him right so so she actually went and said come and see come and see this man who, t who told me everything that i ever did it's an invitation right i see a lot of times when i give talks about evangelism is that people are much more comfortable with uh, i'm going to live as a good and righteous person in the world and that would be my job of evangelism like like that's the most comfortable way of evangelizing you know god said we should evangelize okay i'm evangelizing i'm going in the middle of the world and in my office being honest and i'm not lying and i'm not hurting people and i'm not cutting people off in traffic and i'm evangelizing okay maybe maybe this is a part of it right but you see the samaritan woman what she did right she 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 she, she, she went and she told people this is the experience that i had come and see yourself right and this is maybe the part that the church like the coptic church as a whole that we, we we miss sometimes the idea of like the church is here as the ark of salvation that god has placed on the earth right it is the place of salvation for everyone for us and for others so so for me to have access to this ark and not to invite other people to it is you know it says something you know, I always I like to give this kind of hypothetical example to kind of frame evangelism when we're thinking about it. Imagine if you had a, a room, and on this room was a table, and on this table there was two sets of cards. There was blue cards and there was red cards, and there was a bunch of people in this room. And when people walk into the room, they're told to pick a card, either blue or red, and stand in this line. And you don't know what is the blue and you don't know what is the red. What does it mean? Some people pick up the blue and some people pick up the red and they're standing in this line. So you being a very curious person, decide that you're going to sneak up to the front of the line and you're going to see what's going on. And you realize that everyone who has a blue card is being, is like safe and allowed to leave. And everyone who has a red card is being thrown into a fiery pit. Okay. You now know this. What are you going to do? Huh? You pick a blue card. And then you tell other people to pick up the blue card, right? Like, like imagine that you decide I'm going to pick up the blue card and then I'm just going to stand in the line silently and I'm not going to say anything to anyone. Like, what does that say about me? You know, it's not, it's not good, <laughs> right? Like, like that would be like the ultimate in, in just kind of like not caring and having no sympathy or compassion for anyone around me. I'm just so content that now I know the truth that I can, put, I can have the blue card with me in my hand. I'm very confident that I'm going to walk up to the front of the line and nothing bad is going to happen to me. I really don't care what happens to anyone else. Okay. So if you try to apply that same analogy, okay, if we really believe that what we have is the truth, and we believe that this is the path of salvation and that other people that do not are not on this path of salvation have judgment if that's really what we believe 
then how is it that I could live in the world and not share that with other people, right? How is it that I could do that? And what does that say about me if I, if I choose to do that? And then I can say, you know what? Well, I'm uncomfortable talking to people. Okay, man, you're uncomfortable. Yeah, maybe you're uncomfortable. Maybe if you try to do it, it won't, you won't be as uncomfortable. Maybe you should o get over your discomfort because what's at stake is so important that it doesn't matter whether you're uncomfortable or not, you know? And we're not talking about going up here on the street corner and preaching to random strangers. All we're talking about is when I have an opportunity, maybe with someone that I already know, whether a family member or a friend, that I find the opportunity and instead of being nervous and scared of break, bringing up the topic, that I bring it up. And whatever happens, happens. If the person doesn't like it, they reject it, if they don't come, okay. I did, what, I did my part. I did like the Samaritan woman. I had this experience with God. I know the truth. I tell the people, come and see. That's it. And I think we'll find that if we try it, it's not as hard as we think. I think the fear we have is unjustified. What exactly do we think is going to happen when we tell people, yeah, I'm going to a Bible study later today. You're welcome to come if you want. What's going to happen? Nothing bad is going to happen. The worst is going to happen is they say, no, I'm not interested. Okay, you're not interested. That's fine. We're not forcing anyone to do anything. All we're doing is making it available. You know, it's like imagine Noah who's building the ark and he knows that tomorrow it's going to flood. And he has the ark there and he meets somebody who doesn't know anything about this. He never heard the warnings of God. He didn't know about the ark. You know, he, all he has to do is say, hey, do you want to come into the ark? Tomorrow it's going to flood. And if the answer is no, the answer is no. But if, but if I didn't say anything, if I didn't open my mouth, if I didn't try to tell this person, then in some, in some extent, I'm responsible, right? I'm responsible. And there's a passage in the book of Ezekiel. I think it's, it's, either, verse, it's either chapter 34 or 38. I can't remember. Where essentially Ezekiel is telling, uh, God is telling Ezekiel that he is the watchman of Israel, okay? The watchman of Israel, meaning what? It is his job to deliver the message of salvation to the people. And if he does not deliver it, God says to him what? Uh, that that person will be condemned, the one who is living in sin, and I will hold you responsible for their blood. That's what he said to Ezekiel. But he said to him what? If you do tell them the truth and they continue to live in sin, then yes, I will judge them, but I will not judge you because you did your part, which was to tell them the truth. They refused it. That's on them. So I don't want that at the end days, God would come to any of us and say, you had access to the truth. You were so happy because you lived in the truth. You were so happy because you could take communion. You were so happy because you were baptized. You were so happy because your children had Sunday school program. You were so happy because of all the, the, the resources you had that enriched your life, that made you feel like you had purpose, and you did not share any of these with anyone, right? What is it that God would say about us if this is the, 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 the decision that we choose, right? And that's why evangelism is more than a commandment. Evangelism is an act of love. Because if I truly believe this, all that I'm saying, then it'll come naturally to me. I don't want to see, just, just as, you know, if you see someone drowning, like if you're walking by a pool and you see someone drowning in the pool, by our very nature, we are going to try to save that person from drowning. Like it doesn't require reading a manual. It, like it doesn't require thought. The immediate you see someone dying, you want to save their life, right? The problem is, is that when we, we don't see the people dying, 
we see people in our offices, we see people out in the world, you know, they have different aspirations, they have different goals, they seem fine, nobody's dying, no one's burning on fire, no one's drowning, they seem fine. But what does the scripture say about those people, right? What does it say about them? It says they have no salvation. If, unless they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have no salvation, which means they have eternal condemnation, eternal death. So wouldn't that be enough of a motivation for me to see them like a person who's drowning in a pool of water that I'm just going to pull them up, right? This is something for us to consider. Another type of um, evangelism or active evangelism is intellectual. This is like when St. Paul was speaking to the Greeks. The Greeks were very intellectual people. It says, what then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So why is he speaking like this? Why is, why is he mentioning this unknown God and he's speaking about the, like the Greeks and, and that he's saying you are very religious? He's starting with them from where they are. Okay, where are they? Right, the Greeks were very what? They were very intellectual. They were philosophers. They... Um, you know, they, they, they thought a lot, right? And so s some people, the reason that they maybe doubt the faith, or doubt the Christian faith, is because they don't understand or they think it's illogical. They think that, that they ha there's a lot of questions that don't have answers or there's, you know, it's not self-consistent or there's contradiction or whatever. And maybe for those people, um, they have a lot of questions that need answering. And so then who is it going to answer the question? It's us. Right? It's sad that a lot of people, non-Christians, believe that all Christians are just foolish, dumb, delusional people. How is it that you can believe in something invisible that you don't know and that you've never seen? Well, it's obviously, it's because you're just a delusional person that believes in fairy tales. You know? And that's the conclusion that they come up with for people who are Christian because they cannot understand how reasonable people could ever believe in what we believe. But there's a lot of reason in our faith. There's a lot of logic and consistency in our faith, right? This is the study of apologetics. When you study apologetics, you learn a lot about all the reasons why we believe what we believe. Sadly, um, oftentimes the reason we personally believe something is just because somebody told us that it was so, right? And that's the extent of the reason why I believe something. And so if somebody challenges that faith, challenges that claim that I'm making, I'm like, well, I don't know. Somebody said so, and so I believe them. And that's not a very convincing uh, argument, right? And you can see that if somebody is coming from this perspective, this very logical, intellectual perspective, and, and the only reason that I have to give to them as to why I believe what I believe is just because, well, somebody told me so, my parents said so, or somebody said that it was so, right? Well, that's not going to convince anybody. So again, if my... If I'm satisfied with simply being in the church and my ch kids are in the church and I serve in the church and I do everything in the church and, I, and I'm not questioning anything and I'm happy with my faith, okay, 
But if I'm actually trying to bring other people from the outside that have no background in orthodoxy at all to the church, now I have to know things that maybe I never felt need to be aware of previously, right? I have to understand the basics foundation of the faith, not just because this priest said it or this bishop said it or was written in a book. I have to understand. I have to have a much deeper understanding than otherwise, okay? I'm not trying to turn the Christianity into nothing but, you know, scholasticism and studying information. I'm not saying that. Christianity is a relationship with God. But when you are trying to bring somebody to that relationship with God, they're going to have questions and we have to find the answers. And maybe if we don't know the answer, we can go research the answer, find it and go tell them what it is. It's not possible for us to have every answer. And one of the reasons that people don't evangelize is because they're afraid that they're not going to have the answers, right? But that's also not a good reason. I mean, people ask me questions I don't know, and then I have to go study it and research it, right? So it's much nicer when they ask me by text message so that I can go research it and just give an answer. Um, there's, there's so much to know, right? So don't feel that if, if unless you have a certain level of knowledge, then you can't do it. No, you can do it, but also read understand learn why is it that we do what we do why is it that we believe what we believe another type of active evangelism is the testimonial which is speaking about our own experience an example of this is the man born blind it says in john chapter 9 the man answered and said to them why this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from speaking about jesus christ yet he opened my eyes now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. He was speaking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees came with a lot of theological understanding and knowledge from their perspective, um, arguments that were very difficult to respond to because they were the spiritual leaders right what is it that this man did to respond to them he didn't try to respond to them on the on the same grounds on the same theological grounds that the pharisees are asking he just says here's what happened to me i was blind he came he did this miracle i can now see and if he can able to do this miracle then he has to be from god like it's a very simple argument and it was something personal that happened to him I'm not advocating that we go and start telling very personal information and our story to just anyone. But I am saying that there is, uh, there is um, it's very convincing to people when we speak about something we have personally experienced rather than book knowledge, right? We can talk about book knowledge and there's a place for it, but there's also something about, let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you the experience that I had because no one can refute that. No one can refute your experience. That was your experience. There's no argument against your experience. When I tell people such and such happened to me, they can't tell me, no, it didn't. This is my experience. And this is part of the reason why I believe. Let me explain to you how when I was in a very difficult situation, God helped me, right? This is powerful because in the end, this is what people really want. What people really want is joy in their life. They want peace in their life. They want to feel contentment. They want to feel they have purpose. They want to feel like they have meaning. So when we talk to them about the reason that we have purpose and, and why we are content and why we have meaning and why we all this, that's powerful. That's a powerful message. 
and maybe we'll attract a lot more people that way than by trying to start with, you know, some theological argument. Because this is oftentimes the way that people think about evangelism. Like whenever, like, you know, the OCCM, the college groups that do, like, and, and the universities, right? They have these tabling events where they, they speak, like, they, they sp have a table, and people will come to the table, and they'll talk to them about the church, okay? And inevitably, what they try to do is they come up with, like, a spiel, like a paragraph of some stuff that they're going to say whenever somebody comes to the table. What am I going to say? Well, we're going to talk about the church. We're going to talk about the church did this, and this was happened, and this, and this, and this, and here's the history of the church, and this, because that's easy to do, and that's something that we know. But when you are talking to someone, maybe that is not the most effective thing. You know, don't lead with ecumenical councils. You know, that's not going to capture the attention of people. It doesn't mean that those things are not important. It just means that's not the initial thing that we need to discuss, right? Some very... Uh, you know, important things that are also kind of very obscure, things in history that have happened that don't seem to modern people to be relevant. But if we talk about ourselves, we talk about things that, like, that matter to people, we come from the place that they are, like what St. Paul was doing with the Greeks, this is something that is much more attractive, right? And that's why they always say, well, you listen more than you talk, which is hard to do, actually. It's very hard to listen more than you talk because the second you have something to say, you want to stop and interrupt the person and say it, especially when the stuff the person is saying is kind of doesn't make any sense. You're like, well, let me stop you there. You know, let me correct what it is that you said. But again, the initial conversation that we have with someone that we are trying to evangelize to, it's not about getting it all correct. It's not about giving them an information dump about everything that's orthodox. It's just getting them willing to talk. That's enough. Getting them willing to ask a question. Getting them willing to come to the church is great. You're not going to fix every problem. You're not going to answer every question. You're not going to correct every wrong theological understanding in the first conversation, right? So just let them talk. Let them talk and make them feel like you care about listening to them. That in itself, be a friend to them. That in itself might bring them to the church much more than any other theological truth that you might give them in that conversation. There is also confrontational evangelism, which is less common. But this example we can see from St. Peter in Acts chapter 4. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, this is after they, they healed the lame man, by what means he had been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. He's very firm. He's very, um, he's, not, he's not like kind of just sitting back and letting people walk over, all over him. He's saying, you're, it's your, you are the one who crucified the Lord, right? But this is also a kind of evangelism. Oftentimes, Christianity is spoken badly of, right? And we hear that maybe in our workplaces or in school or in the media and so on. And people will mock Christianity and mock the Lord Jesus Christ and blaspheme his name or use his name in vain. And oftentimes, we just kind of stay silent, and maybe part of the staying silent is because we're afraid of offending people. And we think, well, you know, if I offend someone, then that's not a good start, right? 
Like offending someone is not a good start in this process. Like maybe I just need to be patient and wait. Okay. And maybe in some cases that is the right approach. But in a lot of cases, the right approach is to speak up. The right approach is to speak up and say, I do not appreciate and I do not accept what it is that you're saying. Because again, it goes back to that we are afraid, right? We are afraid. We don't want to call anyone out because we're afraid of what might happen. What if I, if I stand up and I say, do not speak this way, you know, maybe I'm worried how their response is going to be. Or maybe I'm worried that the relationship that I have with that person is going to be affected. Or even if it's just strangers, I'm afraid that I'll be mocked. But look at the way that the Lord acted. Even in the temple, when he saw the, the money changers in the temple, he was upset and he, he overthrew the tables of the money changers, right? The Lord was not simply humble and quiet in every situation. There was a right time to be loud. There was a right time to make ourselves known, right? And this is also evangelism because people will see the strength of our faith based on our fearlessness. Like what is martyrdom? Martyrdom is public fearlessness, is standing up against whatever authority that exists that is seeking to harm us, that is seeking to mock us, that is seeking to put us down, right? I'm not saying to have any kind of rebellion or revolt or anything like that. But I am saying there are times in our life where we stay quiet and say nothing because we don't want to stir the pot and we don't want to cause any problems when really we shouldn't be staying quiet. We should, with respect, make it known that what they are doing is wrong, regardless of if we are mocked or not. Actually, if you are mocked because of that, that's a crown for you in heaven, right? So this is a part of being a minority. We are a minority, a minority of faithful Christians living in a world and a country that rejects us. So we need to be careful with the way that we respond. And this, maybe when someone sees us responding with this confrontational way, trying to defend the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, someone watching this might be attracted to the faith just because of that, right? Passive evangelism which I mentioned um, before, has to do with attracting people by who we are and what we do. Not necessarily by our words, but by, by what we are and, and, and by who we are and what we do. Being ready for the people, like I mentioned in the church. I'm not going to talk about it again because we, we kind of spoke about it. Um, the church building. This is one type of passive evangelism. This is why, like, the big cathedral-style churches that, you know, the, the Coptic churches are, are really nice because it will attract people just by the building. Like, there are many people at St. Mary's that will come and drive by St. Mary's and actually go inside the building and ask about what this is simply because they saw the building. It's a unique building. It's not something you see on a regular basis. One of my coworkers, actually, um, in my, the last job before this job, uh, he, uh, he, lived in the, he lived in this area, and he told me, yeah, we see that church all the time. And m every time my son sees it, he says it's the castle, right, about St. Mary's. He calls it the castle. Almost everyone, actually, that sees me, when they ask me, like random people that I'll meet in the street, when they ask me, where is your church? I'll say, oh, it's a church near this and this. They say, oh, you mean the one on 529 on Highway 6? I'm like, no, the other one. 
because everyone recognizes it. Everybody knows that church is there. Everybody that drives anywhere in that area recognizes that there's a unique building over there. Okay? That is a type of passive evangelism. That's actually one of the benefits of having ostentatious-looking building, right? I'm not saying we are trying to show off. I'm just saying we're trying to be ourselves, right? We're, we're, we, we are who we are, and people will see the unique style and structure of the building. Another type of passive evangelism is, let's say, in our meetings. Obviously, in our church, we do everything in English. This is an important part of passive evangelism because if you go into a meeting and everyone's speaking Chinese, um, you probably will not stay, right? Because it's not, you, you, you realize, well, one, you can't understand, but two, you also feel like this meeting isn't for you, right? Because this meeting is intended for people who speak that language, right? The only way for us to expect people to attend is to make it in such a way that they it's accessible to them, right? Um, the way that we live our life, our personal conduct in public. And this is why it is so important how it is that we dress, how is it that we talk, what it is that we put on social media, how is it that we cho choose to live our life outside of church, outside. You know, some people have this mentality that it's like in church I'm going to be on my best behavior and I'm going to do everything right, but outside of church it's like my own time, right? If, if we take this command of evangelism seriously, then even if it's not for my own personal salvation or to do what I believe is right, then I will realize that people are always watching me. There are people always around. And if people know that my history and, you know, as I curse and I lie and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, a not a, even something like being on time to work, working hard and getting my work done on time, going the extra mile, all of those are, are things that people will associate with our character. And if they see that our character is, has a good character, and they see that we are Orthodox Christians, you know, like in Egypt, for instance, um, it's known that the, the, the people who are, um, who are very faithful with money are the Coptic people. So you'll find in a lot of different companies, the person who is chosen to be like the accountant or the treasurer of the company, the one who has access to the money, is a Coptic person, even if there are so many other people who are Muslim there. Why? It's because it is known that Coptic people tend, not always universally, but they tend to have, they, they tend to be trustworthy. So, so again, when people look at us, what do they see? Do they see someone who is trustworthy? Do they see someone that they want to emulate and be like? Martyrdom is a type of passive evangelism, right? About St. Philippatir, it says, the emperor called Mercurius and asked him, is it true that you refuse to worship the idols who helped us during the war? Mercurius answered with courage, Your Majesty, the victory was not due to dumb idols made by human hands. It was accomplished by the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who sent his archangel to give me a sword and strengthen me. I cannot deny my God and worship statues. The martyrdom of the saints tells us something, even if you've never met these people. It says these people believe so strongly in what they believe they were willing to give up their life for it. They weren't making political statements. They weren't saying things that got them ahead. Actually, the things that they said and the things they did caused them to die. And yet they did them and said them anyway. There is authenticity in what they did, right? This is passive evangelism. You know, one of the ways actually that we see one of the proofs of the resurrection, when we speak about what is the proof of the resurrection, it is the fact that all of the disciples were willing to die and be martyred for the sake of this message. 
Because if they were lying, as many claimed that they were, that they actually stole the body of Christ from the tomb because they wanted him, they wanted it to seem like he had been resurrected from the dead when actually he hadn't. If this was in fact a lie, do you think that those people would be willing to die for this lie? They're, they would not die for the lie. The fact that they were willing to die meant that they truly believed in what they said, which was that the Lord Christ resurrected from the dead. So if I'm willing to suffer for this faith, then that says that I really believe it. I don't gain anything personally from this. You know, we live in a very cynical society and a society where nobody does anything without there being some personal gain, right? Everyone just wants personal gain for themselves. So when we're telling people that we believe this and I don't gain anything personally from it, I'm willing to suffer and die from it, right? This is a powerful message that tells people this is true, that I really believe this. I, uh, this is authentic, right? And this can attract people to the faith. Yes. Martyrdom? Because someone's just coming to kill you. So, <laughs> so, so, I mean, you're not necessarily going out and doing anything. Someone is coming to you and killing you for what you believe. But, I mean, yes, I mean, there can be elements of active in it as well. <laughs> so when you think about evangelism as a whole, you can think of it kind of like a model from Noah's Ark, okay? What is it that God told Noah to do? He told him to first build the ark, and then once the ark was ready, okay, then the animals were to come, right? So if the church is the ark, we get the ark ready, right? You know, it's sad, it's sad, but I know of situations where I tell people do not invite people to the church because in those communities, if somebody were to come to the church, they would feel so rejected by the people there because they're like, you know, not Egyptian. Um, and people would look at them and people would make them feel like they would, and the people have left the church for that reason, right? I tell those people, like, invite them to some other meeting that's not like with the general population of the church for that reason. And I hate to say that, but that is the truth in some cases. So first prepare the church so that it is able to receive the people, that's the passive evangelism. Make it so that they can, it can receive the people. So that when the people come, the church is actually like all the tools of salvation offered in the church is accessible to them. And once it is accessible to them, then invite the people to come. Okay? You know, don't invite the people until the church is ready. And that's why we spend a lot of time trying to make the church ready. And that is the importance of the passive um, evangelism. One final thing I, I want to mention, I think it's the final thing. Um, our churches, like the Orthodox faith, is very um, deep and has a lot of things in it. And there's a lot of things that are difficult. Like we have three or three and a half hour or four hour long liturgies. We have a lot of prayers that we ask the people to pray. We have a lot of fastings. We fast two thirds of the year. And so if you bring someone from the outside and you tell them, you want to join our church? Our liturgies are three hours. You fast two-thirds of the year. Um, you know, you're, you're asked to do prostrations, um, all these difficult things. You know, do you want to come and sign up for this? Um, it's uh, difficult, okay, for someone who first hears about these things. And so it's a challenge. How is it that we bring people from the outside to the church that have not grown up with, the, with this, okay? And there's really two approaches, one approach is that we modify 
everything that we do to make it easier, okay? So I call this catering to the lowest common denominator. We can shorten the liturgy, we can simplify the hymns, we can reduce the fasting, we can do a lot of things so that the people who come from the outside are not, do not feel intimidated and there's no, like, it's, it's much simpler and easier to accept. That's one option. The second option is that we keep the standard where it is, okay, but we create bridges. We create means by which people can get up to speed quickly, right? So, for instance, um, in, a, in a typical Coptic church, the vast majority of the congregation has attended Sunday school throughout their life and grown up through Sunday school. So when they're adults, they have a lot of knowledge just based from Sunday school, okay? And so um, when, you, when you have a church that the majority of the congregation did not grow up in Sunday school, now there's even more of a need for educational classes for adults so that they can learn the things that they didn't learn when they were kids, okay? You can focus on making things understandable because you understand that your audience, um, that, that this is foreign to them, right, to a large extent. You can focus on catechism. You can do many social activities. You can spend extra time explaining things, right? So in the first option, you kind of remove all the difficult parts. And the second option, you don't remove the difficult parts, but you understand that they're difficult and you don't take for granted that they're difficult and you don't assume that people understand them. And so you take steps to try to educate the people, okay? Some churches have tried option one and some ch churches are trying option two. An example of option one is the Catholic Church. Back before 1969, the Catholic Church, in terms of its practices, which much, was much closer to the, what we do in the Orthodox Church, the Mass was much longer. Um, for instance, the priest faced the East just like the congregation as opposed to now. Um, there was a lot of changes that happened in 1969, like in the lectionary, like in the readings of the church, to make it less um, objectionable, if you want to say, for the people who kind of are hearing. I mean, it's a Bible, but the, the readings in the Catholic Church spoke about things like judgment and sin and things like that. A lot of that was removed um, after 1969 in an effort to attract more people to the Catholic Church. So what the Catholic Church tried to do was option one. We're going to remove the things that are difficult, right? We're going to reduce the fasting requirements. We're going to make the liturgy shorter. We're going to, to make it so that any person who comes into the church, it's going to be much easier for them to join and be a member, okay? But one of the, you have a question? My, I don't think you can. That's why I'm, I'm against option one. <laughs> um, so, and, and there are actually some Coptic churches that have tried option one, okay? Um, but but in, in the end, we, we are saying like that, that the reason we are doing what we are doing is because we believe that this is necessary for salvation. We believe that these are good practices. But the beautiful thing about the Orthodox Church is for pastoral reasons, each individual, their spiritual practices can be catered to them. So for instance, if a person is brand new in the church, you're not going to tell them, hey, fast every fast of the year. You're going to tell them fast one day a week to start. But with the goal of eventually reaching the fullness of what everybody is do does and what the church does, right? 
So you can start at a lower level on an individual basis and then grow into something that is higher and higher. If you use option one, then essentially you've lowered the standard for everybody, even those people who can do more, you've lowered it down to the very minimum. It's like imagine if you had like people who are Olympic athletes, okay? And those Olympic athletes, they can run like really far and really fast and do this. But then they said, no, 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 we're going to make the track very short, right? The track is only going to be like, you know, 20 meters, okay? And even though this Olympic athlete can run 100 meters or 400 meters, but no, no, you only have to run 20 meters, okay? So it's like reducing the target goal for everyone. Whereas if you keep the target up high, but you make the people understand that you're not going to be there all at once, but you're still trying to reach there, right? Then that, I think, is a much better approach, okay? And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to not change the standard. We haven't reduced anything in the church, like here at St. Paul and any of the American Coptic churches, okay, in the diocese. We haven't reduced anything, right? So people, when they come, yes, maybe they're going to be a little overwhelmed, but... Yani, by the grace of God and what we're trying to do is to have as many programs as possible so that they learn what it is that they need to know and personalized spiritual practices so they don't necessarily have to feel like they have to do everything all at once from the beginning and feel overwhelmed by it, right? So we don't sacrifice the standard, but we make it easier, like those bridges, to, for people to reach that standard um, over time. Yes. How, how, how do we differentiate ourselves from the Catholic Church um, and describe what is it what we believe without comparing ourselves to any other church? Um, I think this is, uh, this is hard to do in one conversation, um, in, in especially like when we first meet someone. I mean, how is it that we really are going to explain things? We can say that we are an apostolic, like, you know, we, when we speak about our church, we say that it is the, um, the, the, the one holy Orthodox Catholic Church. Right, so it's one, meaning this is the original church that came from the time of Christ. This is the original church that, that was um, formed then, okay? And the church is holy, right? Because we are following the commandments of Christ and not the commandments of the world, okay? It's Catholic in the sense that it's universal, okay? And it's the only church, the one only holy Catholic apostolic church. It's apostolic, it's holy, it's, it's, it's united as one. So we can give some of the characteristics of the church without having to necessarily compare it to anything else um, and speak about how it was, we, we, we hold fast to the faith that the early church had from the very beginning, even before the Catholic church. But if you wanted to have a deeper conversation with someone, um, you know, then you can go in more detail. But I think if you're just going to have a casual conversation, it's hard to go into a lot of detail in a short amount of time. Mm. 
Yeah, and you can say that our church pre-existed the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church actually was a schismatic church that came out of the Orthodox Church. Yeah. Sherry? Instead of... I've come to realize lately, instead of comparing our faith or what orthodoxy with other Christian denominations, I think the better way to approach it, and Abona, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is to actually explain what orthodoxy is. I don't think we need to compare and say that, well, we're like this or like that, because because of our unique faith and what we believe in, we are so different in a way where I think comparing is probably a very wrong approach. Am I Yeah, and, and you'll find people, like you said, that are against the Catholic Church. So when we tell them we're like the Catholic Church, that's not a good start. <laughs> and most Protestants, uh, or a lot of Protestants, um, do not see the Catholic Church favorably. So if you're talking to someone who's Protestant and you tell them we are like the Catholic Church, that's already like uh, something not good Yeah, in their, in their mind. Yes. So that would be considered like the ministry of the lost sheep, right? And there's a lot of overlap um, between the lost sheep ministry and the ministry of the unbeliever. Um, actually, that's a topic that actually I was going to talk about it today, but we don't have time. So we'll talk about it next time, um, which is the three groups uh, of people that the church is supposed to serve. The church serves the believer, the people who are active members in the church. The church serves the lost sheep, the people that used to be active members but have left. And the church serves the unbeliever who are the people that are outside that were never in the church. Um, so, so definitely there's a lot of overlap in evangelism because evangelism is about having the heart, a heart for people who are outside. So whether that person who is outside is, you know, an atheist or a person from another denomination or whatever they might be, or a person who we already knew at one point in time from the church, but left. Um, and a lot of time the people who are the lost sheep, they have, um, some traumatic experience that happened in their life that they're, they're struggling with. And they need counseling. And a lot of times the counseling is a thing that is necessary for them to feel like they can come back. And definitely feeling in the church that the people are warm and, and accepting of them and not bringing up whatever problem had happened in their past that is then making them feel uncomfortable. Um, that's another reason why being warm and welcoming is so important because the lost sheep also will not return to the church if they feel like the church is not accepting of them. Yes. Maybe this will come up later, but like for me personally, one thing I struggle with is like, well, what what happens next? Like if I reach out to somebody, what's expected of me and that relationship? Yeah. So, um, you know, when when Philip was speaking with Nathaniel, um, which we'll talk about uh, another in another topic, he told him what come and see. He didn't tell him go and see. Right. He said, come. Like, I will come with you. So when you invite someone to the church, you have to be with them alongside them. So if you're going to invite them to a Bible study, go with them to the Bible study. 
If you're going to invite them to a liturgy, go with them for the liturgy. Ask them, see what is it they need. Do they have any questions? Would you would do, would they like for you to set up a meeting with uh, the priest for them? Would, what what is it that they need? And you are there kind of to facilitate it to make them feel comfortable. Because if they know you, then you are going to be the greatest source of comfort for them in a new in- environment that they don't know. So your role is to um, to invite them, to go with them, to pray for them. Um, and to give them, you know, ideas of would you like this? Would you like that? Did you know about this? Come attend this social event. Like um, also a big part of evangelism is not just the spiritual uh, topics and the spiritual meetings, but it's also the social meetings. Because if they can establish good, friendly relationships from people in the church, that will also be a big motivator for them to continue to come. Um, and, and so that's why I'm saying is like the fellowship aspect is very important. The more they feel connected to the people, the more they feel like they will stay in the church. And that's actually when somebody comes um, because they want to be baptized in the church. Before I even give them the catechism, I tell them, come and attend the Bible study. Come and meet the people and try to establish relationships with the people. Because being part of the community is necessary to be a part of the church. It's not just, I'm going to attend a Bible study and go home. No, I should come and I should should interact with the people this is actually part of the the body of christ is the fellowship that we have so you being there with that person makes a huge difference yeah um so like you were saying there's we have high standards so how do you approach someone okay let me rephrase it how do you not let somebody get discouraged from the standards do you just not mention it or do you like, what do you say? Like, if they know you and they already know your standards, how do you make that something that's not discouraging to them? So I think w- what I mentioned is make them realize that the spiritual canon, the spiritual rule of each person is something uh, that is unique, and it's between them and their father of confession. And, and, and emphasize the role of the father of confession, who is kind of like a personal trainer, if you want to call it that, right? So So... Like, I always tell people, don't get overwhelmed with this idea of the fasting. Don't get overwhelmed with this stuff. Like, even people who are like, okay, the, the liturgy is so long. Say, so, okay, you can come, like, let's say a little, you don't have to come from the beginning. Why don't you come, like, a, in the middle, okay? And we'll start there. But anything that we say, it's not because we are ridiculing what we have. Because some people take that approach as like, oh, yeah, you know, our liturgies are so long. And, you know, I don't even know. You, you know, it's like, don't ridicule what we have. but But make it sound like, it's understandable and expected that they won't necessarily be able to do everything all at once from the beginning. And that's known. And whoever they choose to be their father of confession realizes that. And they're not going to be pushed to do something that they're not comfortable with all at once. Because these things are spiritual practices. There's a difference between a spiritual practice and something that is necessary for salvation. Right? Like fasting, for instance. Fasting is a spiritual practice. Fasting is something that we do to help us to grow in salvation. So we do it because it's beneficial. But if I try to give some something to someone beyond their ability, then it no longer is beneficial to them. So so I would say like ap- approach it with the idea that it's it's customized to them. Yes.
but then but then you have the other the other people mostly are people that are Christian but are Protestant that might not know the the treasures of the Orthodox faith or what the Orthodox faith gives them and a lot of them have been I don't want to say brainwashed but sold on this you know soul scriptura I could decide what's right for me and so without I don't know how you evangelize for them by acting or inviting them to church. They're sold on their theory or on their faith without going down the confrontational type of why, are, why is your faith not the true way, the true, the tr what Christ has set up, without going that confrontational. Inviting them to church, they're like, well, I can read the Bible myself. I have these Bible studies that are m closer to my house, much better, you know, everything. My church is big. It's a mega church. Everything is at my church, and the only way you could convince them is by saying, "Well, you you have a heresy in your faith, almost like you're 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 it's a heresy, Protestant." I mean, to be honest, I mean that's that's what it comes down to, at least in my book. So I mean, definitely each person is different the way you approach them. But I mean, I've talked to people who are like, uh, you know, who are very um, very devout in their faith, but in the Protestant church. Um, and at least the way that I approached it with this person was I tried to make him realize that the truth, the details of the truth matter. So, for instance, if you go to um, the, the when, when the Lord is speaking to Moses about how to build a tabernacle, okay, he gave every single measurement of each element of the tabernacle and every material and every color and everything about the tabernacle. He didn't just say build a house, build a tent, make it good. He said absolutely everything, okay? So you see that God is very detail-oriented, and he cares about the details. The things matter. A lot of times in the Protestant churches, people have the approach that is like, all that matters is that we love God. We love God, and that's the only thing. What about the details? You know, there are a lot of verses in the Bible that directly challenge Protestant beliefs. Talk about those things. Like, for instance, in John chapter 6, when the Lord is speaking about his body and blood, and that his body is food indeed, and his blood is drink indeed, and unless they eat of his body and blood, they have no life. Those things can illuminate, because when you really study them, you realize, well, there's more to this than just symbolism, for instance, right? So, and if you're using the Bible, which is the, which is the book that they um, acknowledge, right? Maybe they don't acknowledge church fathers or anything like that, but they acknowledge the Bible. So, give understanding through that. Okay, and when you explain to them that God is a God of details and look, this is what God said and this is why these things are important and this is something about life or death. Like this isn't even like something kind of superficial. I mean, he's saying unless you do this, you have no life in you. So I think like there's obviously going to be people that are very kind of set in their ways and this is what they, they believe and they're not going to change. And that's fine because, again, you're not trying to force anybody to change. You're just presenting to them a view that maybe they hadn't considered before. Right. And there are people of that type who maybe are just going to come to the church only for social reasons or 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 for what or for maybe for for other reasons that are not like because they believe in the theology. And over time, maybe they will believe or maybe they will never believe. Like I, I said, again, like all we can do is present our our view of things and then it is up to them. I wouldn't use the confrontational approach on them because then you're going to.
I, I mean, but I wouldn't call that confrontational in the sense that you're not attacking them. You're not telling them, you know, but but you can tell them, yes, your views about this subject is contradictory to what this what the Bible is saying. So in that sense, yes, you can say it's confrontational, but it's not like confrontational in the sense that you're responding or rebuking them for something that they did necessarily like something that they're like blaspheming or something like that. But yeah, you can you can be direct. You can be direct. But in the end, realize that, you know, don't keep harping on it. If if you present it to them and they reject it, don't keep pushing it because you're not going to you're not going to change their mind that way. Yeah. Yes. So, just to kind of like add to that and then I have a question as well. When I've dealt with Christians who are from a different denomination and they're very insistent, I've just said, you know, pray about the truth, not your truth, not my truth, but pray about the truth and God will reveal it. And that's where I usually leave it when it gets to the point where they just don't want to hear anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a question about like atheists who have a problem with how ornate the church is ornate ornate because i've had people ask me well if god is so loving and you're supposed to be so giving why are you decking out the churches in gold when we could be taking that money and helping other people and my response is we want to give god the best because we love him but if they don't love him and they don't understand the concept how can you address that with them I mean, I agree with your answer. Uh, I'm not saying that they're going to accept it because, like you said, they don't believe in that. But if you, if you, even even in the Old Testament, when God told the people how to build the temple, it was very ornate, right, and with the best of materials. The church is a representation of heaven, so it is supposed to be beautiful because when we walk into the church, it reminds us of heaven, and we realize that this is an expression of heaven. Everything that we do in the church is an expression of heaven, and modeled after the temple in the Old Testament. So we do try to make the church beautiful. Yes, of course, there is such a thing as going overboard, right? That's a thing. You, you don't want to do that. But we try to make the church beautiful because it reminds us of the beauty of God and the beauty of heaven. But I agree that if he, does, well, I mean, if he doesn't believe in God, then he's, gonna, he's rejecting everything. You can still show them, like, yes, we give money to the poor and we, you know, we do social services and community service and so on. So it's not like we're putting all of our money into this and nothing into giving it to the poor, but we're putting money into both. Yes. Should we be prioritizing our evangelism like uh, towards non-Christians or like other Christian groups? Is there like, you know, as what I'm trying to say that uh, like a Catholic or another Protestant group, they're closer to the truth, so maybe there isn't that much of an urgency that they're on some type of versus a Hindu, a Muslim, or another... I would say you evangelize to whoever God puts in your path, right? So if God puts in your path a lot of people from the Protestant church or if someone is from the Protestant church originally and so they have a lot of family members that are Protestant, then they can evangelize to them. Um, if if they meet people who are atheists or have friends who are atheists or family members who are atheists, they can, Protestant, they can uh, evangelize to them. So I, I'm not saying that you necessarily have to prioritize a person or the other. But you are just whoever God happens to put in your path are the ones that you are going to address. And, and maybe the way you address them is different. Um, he, like statistically, the majority of people that convert to orthodoxy are Protestant. Yeah, statistically. Yes. What would you suggest when you want to light the spark in someone who's not orthodox? And let's say they like their church out of comfort without realizing, I don't want to say ignorantly, but like without realizing, hey, they're not really like 
dogmatically practicing the truth like how do you like i don't want to say trigger but like how do you like i guess what would be the appropriate to plant the seed to like wake someone up to make them realize hey is where i'm going is it going because out of my own personal comfort or is it because it's where god wants me to be because i one thing i run into a lot of times and would be like a lot of people mentioning like oh i like my church or it's i enjoy going there you know we sing a lot the people there they can sing great as if that's what's important towards their salvation like what would be what would you suggest being used to address them to where i don't want to say it's like passive or anything like that but in a way to make them like start thinking like hey is this being comfortable is really where i'm supposed to be or is it really what's really supposed to save me I mean, what I've found to be helpful is um, when people understand what is actually the history of the church, where did the church come from? Like, we have a whole topic to talk about that. When when they realize that the church started out very differently than what they're doing now, right? And what they're practicing now is something completely separate from what the church was doing at the beginning and that what all the churches in the world were doing from the beginning for a thousand years, right? So So when you begin to explain to them that, and it make them curious to see, okay, well, why is it that what we are doing is different? How did my specific church even come to be? And why is that my specific church has the beliefs that it has, right? When you say, okay, for a thousand years, all the churches in the world had identical teaching, right? Why is it that this church that I'm in has a different teaching? And if you get people to start to be curious about that and think about that and try to find an answer to that, you might find that they stumble on the, the truth, which is that, there have been so many schisms from the original church that explains why there's all of these different beliefs and everyone interpreting the Bible in their own way. And then and then maybe that person will be more likely to accept the fact that the, the true church belief is different from what they're practicing. Okay, I think we're, uh, we're out of time. Um, so God willing, we will continue this discussion um, the next four weeks. Um, it will be at 1 p.m. in the church uh for the next four weeks please if you haven't registered you can sign up um on the link that we sent in the announcements it will be recorded and not streamed yeah so the remaining topics will not be streamed but they will be recorded and they will be a part of an evangelism course that will then be offered in the future like a self-paced evangelism course um but the, so the following four weeks we will not be streaming the topics but we will be recording them and they will be part of an evangelism course that you can sign up for in the future. So please, if you want to um, participate and you haven't signed up, please sign up. Supposed to be. Yeah. It's supposed to be an hour. And there will be child care for the remaining four weeks. So there will be child care for anyone who wants to register. There will be child care. Okay? All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for this opportunity to speak about this important topic of evangelism. We ask, O God, that you open our hearts to you, to feel, O Lord, your presence in our lives, to be motivated, and to be, have, be overflowing, O Lord, with love, so that we could share, O Lord, this amazing relationship we have with you, with those who are on the outside, and those who are living in darkness. We ask, O God, that you make the church to be a light, 
that all can see and they see that light manifested in us as we live our lives and go about our day and that we would be bold enough to seek, O Lord, those who are lost and to ask about them and to invite them, O Lord, to this ark of salvation. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from the evil one in christ jesus our lord for thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever and ever amen the love of god the father the grace of the only begotten son our lord god and savior jesus christ and the communion the gift of the holy spirit be with you all go in peace the peace of the lord be with you all amen